0: to Matthew chapter 16. Today we're starting our Easter series that will continue on the Lord's will from now until the week after Easter, April nineteenth. The title of our series is Who Do You Say I Am? And each week we're going to be looking at someone that was uh, had encountered Jesus and their perspective on who he is. Was and what that means to you and I. So today we're going to start uh, with Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. As we live our lives, we're faced with lots of questions. There are many routine questions that you and I face. What am I going to eat today? What am I going to wear today? Am I going to bathe today? Anyone who works from home knows that you ask yourself that question, don't lie. Uh, You ask yourself that question. That's a routine daily question. And there are more rare questions. Should I buy or lease my car? Should I buy or rent my home? Should I tell my wife that I... Hit her car with a garage door. Those are rare questions. But then there are life-changing, life-altering, life-directing questions. Like, who will I marry? What will I do for a career? How am I going to save up so that I can retire? All life-changing, life-directing questions, but even with the gravity of those last three questions that I asked you, and even though we are inundated with crushed questions daily and weekly and monthly, there is one question that is the eternal question that supersedes every other question that vies for our attention and our lives, no matter how important it seems to us, and that is who is Jesus? And as we look at this passage, I want to give you some background of of where this is taking place. And I'm hoping that you'll begin to see this in a different light. Um, than when you read it, you'll read it with this context and, and be overwhelmed by who Jesus is and what he was saying here. In verse 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this region was in the northern part of Israel. Uh, And we know the Romans uh, were now in charge and the Greeks before that. And, um, you know, uh, this particular region of Israel was very pagan uh, here at Caesarea Philippi. It was originally named Panias, P-A-N-I-A-S. It was named after the Greek god Pan. And the reason it was named that is that it was at the foot uh, at this uh uh, where jesus brought us a place called mount uh herman and uh this place was a stone quarry and it was a cave and out of the cave flowed a river and that river flowed from the cave and then throughout the land and it brought green grass and you know brought a refreshment and took care of the people and so the Greeks, when Alexander the Great conquered, and he brought the, the Greek influence there uh, into the region, they accredited this fruitfulness to Pan. Pan, who was the, who revealed himself as the half-man, half-goat god. He was the god of shepherds, the god of fruitfulness, the god of desolate places, the god of the wilderness, right? The god of, 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 of these, uh, life in general as it relates to nature. And so to celebrate that this was potentially Pan's dwelling, uh, what they did was, and it's still there to this day, is they carved out um, indentations in the cave walls around the river. And they put idols of Pan in these cave walls. Now on top of putting the idols of Pan in these cave walls, they also had a temple to Zeus. They had a temple to Pan. And then they had a temple to Caesar because they worshiped Caesar as a god. So they had these three temples, the Temple of Zeus, the Temple of Pan, the Temple of Caesar. And the water would flow through the Temple of Caesar and flow throughout the land. It was a symbol of blessing. And so if you can imagine in your mind, Jesus has taken his disciples away from the crowds the very Jewish part of society, Galilee and that region, and he's taken them to a very Gentile-developed region, a place where many Gentiles would have dwelt. They probably would have outnumbered the Jews significantly because of the lifestyle that was lived there. It was pagan. It was anti-God. It was adulterous, right? Uh, Because of uh, of the uh, pan and the worship of false gods and idols, the worship of... you know, the emperor, the, 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 the worship of these things, worship Caesar. And so it was not a, a, a place where you would expect an Orthodox Jew to be, someone who was a devout Jew. Yet Jesus brought them there, and he escaped the crowd, um, and he, he brought them to this place where it was nothing but pagan idolatry. Pagan idolatry. But this place was also a stone quarry. You know what a stone quarry is? It's where they gather stone to use it to build things. So they harvest stone. They mine stone uh, so that they can build things. So that's the picture that I want you to have in your minds today, that Jesus has deliberately taken his disciples to a real historical location that's there. It's a place that was originally called Panaeus, after the Greek god Pan. It was only renamed Caesarea Philippi, once, Herod the Great passed away, and so his son Philip set up the capital here in Penaeus, and he changed the name to be Caesarea to honor Caesar, but in order to distinguish it from every other town named after Caesar, he said Philip, Philippi, so he named, added his name to it so they would know it was Philip's Caesarea, all right? So here is this pagan land, Adulterous area and Jesus has brought his disciples to ask them perhaps the most pointed and most important question they would have to answer in their walk with him. Now it's been two and a half years approximately when Jesus comes to this location with his disciples. So think about that two and a half years and Jesus only had about a three year ministry. So we're coming down to the end, Right. Two and a half years the disciples have walked with Him. Two and a half years they've seen Him do miracles. Two and a half years they've seen Him forgive sins. Two and a half years they've seen Him do all of these things. He's seen the re- They've seen the reaction of the crowds. They've seen the reaction of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite. They've seen and walked and lived with Him for two and a half years. And so now with just uh, six or so months remaining before Christ is going to head to Jerusalem, where he's going to fulfill that ultimate purpose, which was to die and be sacrificed for our sins, he now has brought his uh, disciples, his closest 12, to this region. And he starts out the conversation, and he says to them, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? And so the disciples, I'm sure, thought for a minute and they had heard the gossip and they had heard the, um, you know, uh, all the chatter when they were out among the people and uh, what they thought. And so when Jesus says in in verse 13 and 14, uh, who do people say the son of man is, they replied, some say John the Baptist others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so when Jesus began to quiz them on, on and ask them these important questions, he started with, who do the masses say that I am? All these people who were following me around. All of these people who had been the recipients of his miracles. They'd the, seen the dead raised. They had seen the sick healed. They'd seen uh, you know, all, all of these things that Christ had done. They had been partakers. They had been fed by him through some fish and loaves. They had, you know, just seen all of these amazing raised the dead. I mean, uh, all of these things. And so Jesus says, who, what's the gossip? Who do these people who you see clamoring after me and following me, who do they say that I am? And none of them got the answer right. You notice the people said, well, we, we think he might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. He might be a prophet. What were they saying? They were saying, we don't think he's the Messiah. We still think he's a forerunner of the Messiah. That's what they were saying uh, when the people were were making these, uh, you know, chattering and gossiping about who they thought Christ was. When they said that he was John the Baptist, or they thought he was Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, what they were saying was they thought he was a good man, a holy man, a great teacher, but he was not the Messiah. He may be a forerunner of the Messiah, someone who was going to be great to talk about the Messiah coming, but he was not the Messiah. The Messiah that they were looking for was going to come with a sword, and he was going to come uh, with uh, punishment, and he was going to overthrow the Roman government. The Messiah they were looking for was going to suddenly set Israel free and set himself up as king and rule over everybody and promote Israel as a nation. The Messiah they were looking for was not the Messiah that showed up. And so they were convinced that while this, uh, this was a powerful, they could not deny the miracles. They could not deny what he had done. They could not deny the authority with which he spoke. And remember they said, well, who is this dude that he speaks with such authority? Right? They could not deny his knowledge of the word. They could not deny uh, his, his conviction, his compassion. They could not deny what he'd done. But he did not fit the mold Of the Messiah. He hung around with fishermen. He hung around with tax collectors. He hung around with these people who a king would not be hanging around with. Right? You know, John the Baptist wasn't seen as the Messiah because what did he do? He lived in the desert, wore homemade camel skin, and ate bugs. Right? Uh, He wasn't kingly. And Jesus, as far as they were concerned, he wasn't kingly. He came from Nazareth. He was from Galilee. His followers were a bunch of ragtag misfits. So he was a good dude. Uh, Someone you should listen to, someone who did awesome things, and maybe it was a sign that the Messiah was coming. But they didn't have the correct answer. They clamored after him, they followed him, they sought him for his miracles, they sought him for his teaching, but they did not realize who he was. Mm -hmm. It is not not what our world is like today. We have politicians who like to quote Jesus. Mm -hmm. They like to use Jesus as an example, but they don't truly believe that he's who he says he is. They use his name for political purposes. They use his name to invoke passion, hoping to win over followers of Christ, but they don't believe who he is, is who he he said he was. He's a good man, a good teacher. He provides some good guidance. Thomas Jefferson, one of our forefathers, do you know what he did? He took the Bible, the New Testament, and he only took the words of Jesus and nothing else. Some believe he didn't even necessarily believe that Jesus was God. He just believed that Jesus himself was a great teacher. So he took out everything but the words of Jesus. So that sounds awesome but he didn't truly understand who Jesus was. No. We live in a society that does not know who Jesus is. They've heard his name. They know what he supposedly did. They've heard his teaching, and his teaching can't be argument. Take care of the poor. Take care of the widow. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Man. Right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Uh, things that, that all make sense. They're compassionate teaching but they missed who he was. And we miss who he is as a society. Quote him, bring him up when it's convenient, but we don't acknowledge who he really is. So the gossip of the scuttlebutt reveals among the crowds that many of them still thought he was just a good teacher and a holy man. So Jesus then goes the next step. And he says, but you, who do you say that I am? That you is plural because he's talking to 12 men. So that you question, who do, it would be like me saying to you, who do you say that I am? So the question was to the group, the twelve. Now, even though the question was to the 12, it was plural, it also carried with it a very heavy weight as it related to the individual. They each had to answer the question who did they think he was? So while the question was to the group, it also was very focused on each individual who do you say that I am? It was like he had gone to them individually. And the context and said, Peter, who do you say that I am? Bartholomew, who do you say that I am? Right? Judas, who do you say that I am? James, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? That I am? A very individual decision. You and I, when it comes to answering this question, no one can answer it for us. Okay. We cannot ride on the answer of mom and dad, okay. we cannot ride on the answer of the pastor or the teacher or whoever. We cannot write on their answer. We must answer the question ourselves, who do I say that he is? Who is Jesus? Amen. It's a personal question and an individualistic question that must be answered by everyone on the face of this earth. Amen. Who is he? Amen. No one else can answer that question for us. It's a convicting question. It's a question that should cause self reflection, even to those of us who have been in his uh, his uh, church any length of time, and even called upon him as Lord and Savior. Because over time, we allow who He is to be watered down. Right. Yes, and sometimes it helps that we be reminded to ask ourselves, "Who is He?" Who do I think he is? Not not what did the pastor preach on Sunday. Not what the commentator wrote in my Bible. Not what the podcast said that I listened to. Not what the worship song said that I sang. Who do I say that he is? And it takes internal reflection. And the answers to that question will reveal why we are in the place that we are in in our lives. Oh, I am going in a direction I did not anticipate I'm going. The answer to that question many times will reveal why we're in the state that we're in in our lives. Who do I say that he is? Who is Jesus? Am I living my life in fear? Who is Jesus to me? Am I living my life without peace and comfort? Who is Jesus to me? Am I living my life uh, angry and bitter? Who is Jesus to me? Am I living my life in rebelliousness and sin? Who is Jesus to me? Am I running from God? Who is Jesus to me? Am I living selfishly and self-centeredly? Who is Jesus to me? Am I doubting God? Who is Jesus to me? Honestly, when you answer that question sincerely, it will reveal to you why your life is the way that it is. Even those of us who call upon Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen. Who is Jesus to us? Amen. Have I watered him down through the years? Mm-hmm. Have I watered down who he is to me? Mm-hmm. Have I forgot that he's the Prince of Peace? Mm-hmm. Have I forgotten that said he's the everlasting? Have I forgot that it says that he'll never leave me nor forsake me? Have I forgot that it says who the Son sets free is free indeed? Have I thought, right, what I was excited about at the beginning, freedom and peace and joy and deliverance and excitement. Have I stopped to think who was Jesus to me? Have I stopped to think when I feel guilty because of something I've done or something I've said or something I've, I've, I've walked away from or participated in have I thought who is Jesus to me he forgave the prostitute and the adulterer he forgave the liar and the cheat he forgave the thief on the cross who had committed a crime so heinous that he deserved to be crucified capital punishment he forgave. Amen. Who's Jesus to you? I mean, that blows my mind. Amen. The answer to that question is so important to us. And when we think about the story, it's so easy for you and I to say, well, that's for someone else to answer. I've already answered that question, but the truth is, every once in a while we need to be reminded to ask ourselves that question again. Amen. Amen. So Jesus says. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter famously answers in verse 16. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What does that mean? Simply put, he was saying, you are the True king. You are the true king. That is a bold declaration. He's saying you are the Messiah. He's saying you are the one. You're not a forerunner. You're not just a good teacher. You're not just a prophet. You are the Messiah, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You are that person who we have been waiting for. You're the one that I've been taught about since I was a child who was going to come and deliver us. You are him. Amen. Remember that this is what they had been looking for when Jesus called them at the beginning with. Andrew, who had been a follower of John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, what did he do? He ran to Peter. He said, Peter, guess what? In the book of John, he said, I have found the Messiah. Let's go follow him. They were looking then for the Messiah. This took the thought of the Messiah and was a declaration that it was now an action in their heart. That took the hope, the faith that the Messiah was coming. And now it was manifested in this declaration that he had actually come. What started out as a hope this is the Messiah. Let's follow him. And spent years developing, all culminated at this point. Not at the tabernacle, you know, not at the temple, not among the religious elite, not among all the people he had healed and all the people Jesus said. Served and ministered to and taught. Nope, it happened in the shadow of pagan temples and idolatry and pagan worship where no devout Jew would venture. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the king. You're the messiah. Meaning he was saying, uh, temple of Zeus, temple of Pan, temple of Caesar, you're the key. These things are in your shadow. You're not in the shadow of them. When you and I go back and look at that, that's what I see. Jesus did not coincidentally do things, and he didn't do things on accident. Everything he did with with purpose. And it cannot be a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Right? When you look, when Peter said in in the book of John, or when Andrew came to Peter in the book of John, and he said, hey, we found the Messiah, let's go follow him. When Peter went to Jesus, he was named Simon. Simon. And when Simon came before Jesus, you guys, I'm sure, know what he said. What did Jesus say to him? You guys remember? You're Simon. Right now, your name is Simon, the son of John or the son of Jonah. But I'm changing your name. You're going to be called Cephas, which is Peter, which means rock. That's all he said to Peter, changing your name. And that was the end of it, rock. That's it. He didn't give him no details. He didn't tell him anything else. He didn't tell him what it meant. Why are you changing my name to Rock? What what does that even mean? Peter had honestly no idea. Simon Peter had no idea what Jesus meant by that. None. Just like you and I, without the rest of the context, would have no idea what, what Jesus meant by that when he said to Peter, I'm changing your name to Rock. Simon, I'm changing your name to Cephas, to Rock. They changed his name to Rock. And now here we are, two and a half years later, and Jesus is now explaining why Peter was going to be called Rock. And it just so happens, coincidentally, that he's in a rock quarry. Well, that's an interesting coincidence. Not only is he in a rock quarry, he's at the base of a mountain, surrounded by rocks. And these rocks were gathered to be made into something else, to be fashioned into cement or brick so they could build these statues and build these things that can be carved to be made into something else. And here, in response to Peter's declaration, Jesus says, man hasn't revealed it. Your thoughts haven't revealed it. You haven't figured this out on your own. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. So that's the truth. What's the truth? Jesus is the Messiah with one true king, the Son of the living God. As a result of that truth and the declaration of that truth, and Peter finally getting it, and the disciples getting it, Jesus says, upon that rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This was a response to the declaration. So they're here and rocks. Now listen, when he says, Peter, you're rock, he says it in the singular, pebble rock. Then when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, the literal language does not mean one rock. It means a group of rocks. So Peter, upon this, or Peter, rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is, I'm in the stone quarry. What are these stones used for? To build things. So, Peter, upon this truth that you declared, I'm the Messiah, the Son of the Living God, the rock. I'm going to build my church, which are all of these rocks. And see, it started out as Peter, James, John, Matthew, right? Bartholomew, I mean, Philip. It started out as those guys. They were the first rocks. Jesus was the chief cornerstone. Those were the first rocks that were put in place. And then upon those rocks was built a church. Amen. See so the pieces were being laid in place then. Those eleven men. <laughs> Judas doesn't count. Those eleven yeah. men. They were the pebbles that we're going to be joined together with the chief cornerstone. And upon that, the church was going to be built. And that is exactly what happened. In the book of Acts, Peter, the rock, preached a message, and then the church was built upon him and the remaining disciples. And it grew, and it flourished, all because of one truth. Jesus was who he said he was. The Messiah. The son of the living God. Amen. To me, that's amazing. Jesus, the great storyteller. Jesus, the great teacher. There was no way that was a coincidence. It could have been. You can't prove it was, was it? But when I look at it, there can't be any way. When I read the history, he had to have gone there for that reason. To make this declaration to be a great object lesson to these guys. They knew what a quarry was. They knew what the difference was between the first word for rock and then the second word for rock. They knew that. Jesus was going to see that the church was built upon that truth and their labor and sacrifice. And then once they passed, guess what? We We were laid on top of that. And the church just keeps being built generation. After generation after generation after generation of new pebbles being laid on top, yeah. brought together and put together and cemented together, and the church just continues to grow, right? And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, the gates of hell, gates are not offensive. Are gates offensive? No. Gates are defensive, yeah. right? When I put a gate on my yard, it's not to go out and smack my neighbor in the head before he has a chance to go into my yard. It's to prevent him, if he decides to enter my yard, he has to go through my gate. I put a lock on my house. Why? Because I don't want him coming in. I'm not proactively going out to the thief on the road and knocking him over the head. It's a defensive mechanism. It's to protect what's on the inside or keep what's inside captive or to protect something valuable on the inside. Now the gates of hell, that's interesting. So the gates of hell are defensive. And then he goes on to say, but I have given you the keys. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? He said gates, plural, of hell. And he said keys, plural. For every gate of hell, there's a key. And behind those gates, Satan has spent centuries, millennia, taking peace and joy and comfort. He had death, the grave, and hiding it behind those gates. See, he took that all when he got Adam and Eve to sin. He took it and he hid it behind the gates. But when Jesus came, he came and he broke down the gates. Mm-hmm. And everything that Satan has tried to keep hidden within the gates, he separated us from God so that we could never have that right relationship again until Jesus Christ came. He separated a man from God It took all the gifts that God gave to man and he put them behind the gate to keep us from getting to them. when Jesus came as the Messiah, he took the authority. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews the power which Satan had over us, which was death, and he broke it. So those defensive gates can't uh, 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 withstand the offensive power of the Father and the Son. cannot withstand the offensive power of God. He had taken it captive for long enough and Jesus was saying, I'm breaking it down. The gates of hell will no longer prevail against it. All of this junk that is in the world, idolatry, all of this man worship, all of these things, what was the thing that God hated the most? Putting anything before him. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What plagued Israel the entire time that they were uh, brought out? Idolatry. Mm-hmm. Putting things before God. What plagues our society today? Yeah. Idolatry. Right. Is it an accident that Jesus took them to a pagan, idolatrous location and there proclaimed on this rock? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means the world cannot win, the enemy cannot prevail, the religious uh, or the, the, the system of honoring the worshiping Satan and worshiping the world will never prevail. That with Jesus' coming, death, and resurrection, you might as well knock it all to the ground. Because while at this moment he was in the shadow of those temples and in the shadow of pagan worship, there was coming a time when he was going to stand over and cast the shadow over them. When he rose from the dead and when he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. Everything was now under his feet. That's what the Bible says. Everything is given and under his feet every temple, every idol, every false god, under his feet to be cast down and destroyed. Not because of who we are, but because Jesus went in first and then he gave us the keys. So that anytime the enemy tries to take something from you and hide it, you can go get it. He gave you the keys. The Bible says then, that whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. and whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. Now we Pentecostals like to get excited because we like to bind and loose thing. That's not what this is talking about. This is saying what already has been done is ready to be done here on earth. And you and I, with the keys of the kingdom, Well, God has a key for that. Uh, You're in pain. He's got a key for that. You're depressed. He's got a key for that. You're afraid. He's got a key for that. You're sick. He's got a key for that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, You're oppressed. He's got a key for that. You're depressed. He's got a key for that. Uh, You know, you got habits you can't break. He's got a key for that. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. Amen. He's got the key. Yes. But you got to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Who Praise is God. he to you? Thank you, Jesus. And when you get that question right, that's the only question you ever have to get right for the rest of your life. Amen. Yes. That's it. Once you answer that, the Father says, hey, you go, know, son. You got full access. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Full access. My kids, uh, Curtis and Billy, and now Alex, he just turned 16. He's getting ready to start driving school and get his license. They all want a car. You know, that's how kids are. (laughs) And uh, the thing is, is that they ain't getting my keys until they acknowledge my rules. When they submit themselves to me and Mom's authority, they get to drive my car. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's how it works, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to get them to them until they submit themselves to my authority. And guess what? If they decide that they're not going to submit themselves to my authority and not obey my rules, guess what I do? Take the keys key mm-hmm. back. The car's still sitting there. Mm-hmm. The car's got gas in it the car is ready to drive, it's already been loosed. Oh, it's there and ready to go, it's already been loosed. But I gotta answer the question, who's dad? Mm -hmm. Is dad in control? Has he called the shots? Is dad the authority in this house? If I can't answer the question, yes, he don't get the keys, he gets to look at it. Mm -hmm. Boy, I sure wish I could be driving that car. <laughs> I wish that could be mine. Until he acknowledges my rules, until he, they acknowledge my parameters, that I'm boss, they don't get the keys. It's there. Doesn't mean it's not there, it just means it's not accessible. Wow. So when we confess Christ is Lord, we answer that question. All of these things that have been loosed they're available for the taking. You ain't calling down something that hasn't already been set free. It's already been done. It's just when you confess it, you now got access to it. Now suddenly, you can go get access. that's, That's what it's all about. And then, when you and I have that access, we have a responsibility. When we answer that question, who is he? Who do I say that he is? And he forgives me. And he has mercy on me. And he gives me access. I'm not to hoard it to myself. But I'm to go share it so that the next layer of rocks can be put on top of me. Mm -hmm. And the church just keeps growing. And growing. (laughs) growing we have a responsibility to share and let them know that if they'll answer the question who is Jesus to you they too can experience joy unspeakable and freedom peace comfort the emptiness can be filled the loneliness can be driven away the darkness can be illuminated by light. Amen. We were to tell them. We were to tell them. We were to tell them. Thank you, Let us stand. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach a loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.ReviveOC.org. Or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 22405. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.